wacky fun. Hi, Megan. All right, so we are talking about church history. And as we continue on, we're still in that, ask, that, that point in the, in the early 19th century where everybody's basically deciding everybody else is doing it wrong. This is a time, because America is still relatively new, we have this sense of, oh, and we can fix everything. We can make it all shiny new. And the shinier and the newer it is, the better it is, right? Novelty is, is the best. Inherently, old things are bad. New novel things, those are good, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, but I mean, that is, even today we kind of tend to still do that, but this is kind of the beginning of that where it's like, ooh, shiny new, that whole old thing. No, we can improve on that. In part because we have been doing a good job of improving a lot of things. So I understand where that comes from. Last week we ended 1831, Joseph Smith taking the first of his additional wives, right? That's kind of where we ended up. Same year, William Miller began the Adventist movement. How many, how many are familiar with the Adventists? That's one set of them, yes. Seventh-day Adventists is part of it. He's born in Massachusetts, but he moves to New York. What have we already heard about New York at this time? Yes, it's a burned-out district. It's so saturated. All these evangelists have come and left Christians and people who were jaded to Christianity. That's about all that's left, according to Charles Finney. In, in New York are people who are either strong Christians or, or inoculated against Christianity. So the evangelists all came and then left because it's pointless to stay there. Inherent problem with this because once you have inoculated somebody with Christianity, now it's, the, it's time for them to come and improve on what they've heard. Because, right, this is, this is America. We can improve on it. So he abandons his Baptist background and becomes a deist, because that's that's where the smart people are going, right? This is the time where all the really smart people, you know, uh, Jefferson's still around and, and saying, hey, you know, deism's where it's at. God is, a, is an awesome God, and he's so awesome that he is utterly other. He's so awesome. If you try to have a relationship with God, you're pulling him down to our level. He's so awesome that he's something completely other than us. And by other, I mean he's disinterested. He wound it up and then left created the universe like a big game of mousetrap and then walked away because that's not the kind of God he is. So anyway, but he, he served in the War of 1812, saw all of his buddies get killed, um, had horrible experiences, uh, a lot of his family members died, and you know that they, they talk about there's no atheist in a foxhole? There's no deist in a foxhole. You know, you find yourself going, I don't know if you're there, God, but if you're, please help. Or the idea of saying, yes, I can sit here at my desk typing my blog and saying, God is a deist. But when my grandma is dying of cancer, I kind of don't want God to be a deist. I kind of want God to be an immediate guy who can actually do something about it. So after a while, he's just like, I'm a little concerned about the idea of an afterlife. Surely this life can't be all that there is. Right? A good deist says, well, of course it is. He's not necessarily a good deist. He's like, I kind of want there to be more to it. And God would, if he loves us, if he's a loving God, he would never judge us. A loving God would never throw anybody to hell because that feels bad. Right? Love wins. Surely love wins because that feels good. If there is an afterlife, it must be paradise for those who love God and cessation of existence for those who don't. There's no hell. I don't like hell, therefore there is no hell. Because what better way is there to decide theology than what makes you feel good? Right? Is there a better
better way to decide theology than what makes you feel comfortable? What? Okay, so we start studying the Bible looking for answers, right? Because you shouldn't just feel your way through theology. You should base it on scripture. Exegesis. That's where it comes. We read the Bible. Starts in Genesis. In 1818, he read Daniel 8.14. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What does that mean? It means something. It's in the Bible. Exegete that verse. By the way, don't look at any of the verses around it. Yeah. Just exegete that verse. What does that mean? Don't read into it, but exegete, but just from that verse. By the way, an, an amazing number of sermons at this time are like that. They take a verse and talk for like 45 minutes on a verse, only vaguely talking about that verse. We're going to talk about a sermon here in a little bit. They just go, really? Is that, uh, is that what Samuel was talking about? Anyway. I would think so, because here's the thing. Yeah, now, wait a minute. I was singing that's when the custodian was coming in to clean the church. <laughs> <laughs> clean the sanctuary, yeah. And he decided that in biblical prophecy, God said day when he meant year. Because sometimes God says one thing and he means something else. Clearly here God says day when he meant year. By the way, there are other people later on who said, no, it's clearly day, because if you see this, that means it's this many years. Now, clearly he meant year when he said day. So that means if the sanctuary that Daniel wrote about is actually this world, really, is there anything contextually to go there? No, but if the sanctuary means world, and if days were years, and if the prophecy commenced at 457 with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes, what? But if all that's true, then that meant Jesus is going to return to cleanse the world in 1843. How could people have missed that? So, it's so clear. For the Jehovah Witnesses, you're leading because this has sounded really familiar. But, it, but it's so clear. When you read, when you read that the custodian is coming to clean the church building, that means Jesus is coming back in 1843. There's no eyes of Jesus in it because it's all from Scripture. Right? How many times does God have to tell you something? Can't it just be in one verse? This is the way a number of people do do exegesis, because they're not actually doing exegesis. Anyway, so by the time 1831 rolls around, he has, he has figured this all out as a big theology, and he starts lecturing on his findings in 1831, explaining that people only have 12 more years to get their life right before Jesus returns in 1843. And you might sit there and go, well, who's going to listen to that? Really? Anybody who likes charts, and who likes big public things, and who doesn't like hearing about the end of the world? People go to prophecy conferences, right? They love that. What? It's a thing. It's a oh, it's such a thing. Yeah. So it's a big deal. Everybody loves the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation. Everybody's like, it's an amazing number of people are bookend Christians. They love the very beginning and the very end of the Bible. The other stuff is interesting too. But man, I want to talk about creation and the end of the world, baby. That's that's the colorful bits. So, by the time 1843 does roll around, he had like 50,000 Millerite followers. People who would follow him around, people who were starting up churches based on this. Just like, remember a couple years ago, we had whole sets of people who were sure that in October 21st, 
Actually, it was May 21st to begin with. And when May 21st came and went, Jesus wasn't back, it became October 21st. And then it became, a, I might have done something wrong. Really? Yeah. But then, by the time 1843 rolled around, get mid-1843, he's like, okay, so sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844, Jesus is definitely going to return, right? Clean the earth, as he promised in Daniel, or do you not believe the Bible? I have charts that clearly show this. Maybe it's April, April 18th, 1844, because... March is coming to April. It was April. Because it's the month after God begins his cleansing process. Definitely by October. I might have actually done this slightly wrong. October of 1844. Eventually people are like, I'm done. They refer to it as the great disappointment. Because he didn't come back. We expected he was going to come back, and he didn't come back. Having said that, an entire movement called the Adventist Church came about trying to focus on Christ's clearly imminent return. He's going to come back really soon. Basically, they said, Miller, it's off on his dates. Yeah, he's a screwball. Yeah, Jesus didn't come back in 1844. But the idea is still sound. Jesus is going to return soon. Do you agree that Jesus is going to return? I'm all for that. Jesus is going to return. Absolutely. So what he wants us to do, and he was very clear about this in Scripture. If you think about what Jesus said, he said, if you work really hard, you'll be able to figure out the times and dates of my return, didn't he? Isn't that what he said? Something. I think Jesus is pretty clear about no, nobody's going to know. It, it's going to come like a day in the night. Who doesn't schedule that with you, right? The whole point of that analogy is you weren't aware that that was the night the thief was coming. I don't even know, Jesus says, when this is going to happen. So, but they're like, oh, no, but if we work really hard, we can figure this out. And that's crucially important because, but isn't that Jesus' whole point? Be prepared. You know, for which date? Be prepared. If I tell you that he's coming back in seven years, you'll spend six years not being prepared, right? So I'm telling you, be prepared. All the time. It's like, this is why I don't give study guides in my classes when I teach. Because kids are always like, but I don't know what to study. I'm like, your book and your notes. But I don't know. A study guide will tell me what to study. I'm like, no, a study guide will tell you what not to study. And you will not study that stuff. I'd like you to remember all the stuff we talked about. And my test will gauge how well are you remembering different things. But I'm not telling you what not to study. Giving you a time when Jesus comes back tells you when not to be prepared. No, I'm amazing. So maybe that's when God just began, began to cleanse the place. Maybe, maybe he did start the cleansing in 1843, as the Bible clearly spoke. So it, it, we expected it was going to be this one, he's going to appear in the sky and everything's going to be amazing quick. But maybe what it is, is it's centuries long worth his cleansing. And at the end of it, he will appear in the sky. Maybe that's what the Bible meant. So you got a whole Adventist church saying, yep, 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 that's what it clearly means. Others said, wait, 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 wait. We assumed it was the earth that he was cleansing. Maybe it's not. Maybe we're talking about a heavenly cleansing. Maybe the sanctuary, the holy place, isn't on earth at all. So according to the Seventh-day Adventists, there's another spin-off of the Millerites, 
Maybe that's when, in, in, in 19, or 1844, that's when he entered into his heavenly process of what they refer to as investigative judgment. There's like a special room in heaven where Christ began to examine the world to see just how messed up it is and who really deserves to be in heaven. And so he's been doing that since 1844, this special investigative judgment. And when he's done with that, that's when he's going to return. Clearly. Right? 1870. They believe that people deserve to be in heaven. Oh, gosh, yes, don't you? No, that's scary. Okay. An amazing number of Christians. I'm not even going to talk about specific denominations. There's a zillion of them out there. But an amazing number of Christians. When you ask them, they will say, they'll talk about, well, you, you spend your whole life trying really hard to be good enough to get into heaven. I, um, one of our youth, uh, just this past Wednesday, that I was, uh, we were having a little small group and talking, one of the youth specifically even said, well, I mean, you really, you need to work hard to try to be good enough to get into heaven. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, you, you do remember it's not about being good enough to get into heaven. We just talked last time about you have to be perfect to be in heaven. And only Christ can make you perfect. You can't be good enough. He's like, yeah, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. And yet those are the words that tumbled out of his mouth. An amazing number of Christians will say this. These guys just kind of institutionalized that. 1870, this is years from now. 18-year-old Charles Taze Russell heard an Adventist sermon, abandoned his Presbyterian roots to become an Adventist. In fact, his own version of Adventist beliefs led to the establishment of, anybody remember what, what church Charles Taze Russell began? Donna? Oh, is it Jehovah's Witness? The Jehovah's Witnesses! <laughs> That's like the theology sounds very similar. Yep. Okay. Much of whose theology is at least started with and was based on trying to figure out exactly when Christ would return. And who deserves what? And once you start spinning off of that, they wobbled more and more and more off of what Christianity was originally intended to be. They also had to come up with all this theology about, well, why didn't he come? Which <coughs> come? Actually, it wasn't 1814. It's 1914. Actually, it's 1917. It's 1918. No, it was 1914. And he was invisible. No, there's this whole thing. It was an inner that comes out of the, I'm telling you, burned out district, right? It's this burn over district. This, you got the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Adventists, the Seventh-day Adventists, the uh, Spiritualists, we'll see, all coming out of that section of New York where people inoculated people to the Bible, inoculated people to Christianity, and didn't disciple them. So how important is that? That you don't just say, I had friends in college that were really big about if you could just hand somebody a Bible, if they just cracked it open, man, God's going to change their life and they're going to become Christians. And I remember lovingly, respectfully saying, no. I have a teacher here in college. My New Testament teacher is flamingly not Christian. He teaches the New Testament and he is not a Christian. I'm sorry, but you don't just crack open the Bible. Yeah, but God's word will never return void. Yeah, but people can still throw it in the dirt. I'm sorry. The Bible's replete with people evangelizing. And if the people do not accept your message, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to, like, brush the dust off and say, I'm done with you and move on. If, because apparently, whether you want to be an Arminian and say they choose not to, or a Calvinist and say they were not predestined to be part of the, of the church, however you want to view that, apparently, people can crack open the Bible and not end up Christian, right? George Ferva, head mm -hmm. of Operation Mobilization, in high school, he felt, uh, he 
you got New Testament, he something out. He says, I was getting people to become Christian before I became one. I realized he wasn't. So apparently even evangelists don't do that if you got Christian. So, so it, this, this particular point in history is crucial to understanding how in America people can say, I've heard your dusty old gospel, but we've got something shiny and exciting. This is novel. This is, this is a better take on it. Trust me. We can fix what you've done wrong. A little bit of that over in Prussia. 1832, old Lutherans are being, uh, being persecuted in Prussia. King Friedrich Wilhelm III had a dream that all Protestant churches could come together and worship together. Isn't that awesome? We could all just be together. All the Catholics are together. Sort of. No, no, no. All the Catholics are together. We'll all be together. You do understand the Holy Roman Empire hates Rome. Two large sections of Catholicism can't stand each other. No, no, no. We can all come together. We'll just make one big church, and it'll be awesome. So he brought the Lutherans and the Reformed churches together, and there'll be the Prussian Union of Churches. Because you can do that, right? You can have a union of two different churches that doesn't water down anything. Yeah! By the way, no, you can't. You can't take the Lutheran Church and the, and the Calvinist Church, stick them together without watering down something. You can't do it. If you remember Klaus Harms, remember when we chatted about Klaus Harms a couple weeks ago? He protested the Union 20 years ago, going, um, this is a bad idea. Kind of like when we talked about the Native Americans last week. He's like, not everybody likes being told all you have to do is round off your square edges to fit into what the government says is the round hole everybody should be fitting into. And if you can just assimilate to the dominant culture, everything will be fine. But Native Americans didn't appreciate that last week. And the Reformed churches and Lutherans didn't necessarily appreciate that in Prussia. Can you picture Calvin saying, fine, let's just abandon those five points so that we don't offend Luther? Could you picture Luther saying, you know what, I was standing over here, but I'm fine with sitting over there if it'll make Calvin feel better. No! I can't imagine either of these guys liking this concept. Anyway, so Friedrich Wilhelm had this naive dream. Can't we all just be together? And all it did was actually create more conflict. More people chafed because he was trying to force them all not to get along, but to be the same. We should all work toward being getting along. But the idea of saying, well, we'll just all be the same. Everything will be fine. Biggest holdouts were the old Lutherans, which is why they called themselves old Lutherans, because they're like, can we just get back to old Lutheranism? This whole rounded off the edges so that it doesn't feel too much like Lutheranism or feel too much like the Reformed Church. Can we uh, can we not do it that way? Because we miss being old classic Lutherans. Several of their synods, and a synod, well, I mean, we've talked about the synod of Dort, synod of different things. Um, a synod is, anytime you get a bunch of congregations together to kind of work through something, uh, it's, a, it's a synod. It's a group that comes together and talks about stuff. Anyway, several other synods refused to stop teaching classic Lutheran stuff. Like, we're going to be goody old Lutherans. We're going to do our thing. Praise God. So, 1829, Friedrich Wilhelm declared it illegal for a church to call itself either Lutheran or Reformed. You cannot call yourself that. We're all just Christians. And we all get along fine. Right? Yeah, that's the way this works. This is what it is. From then on, all churches were simply to be called evangelical. Which is why, even today, the German term for Protestant is evangelisch. Which is why, if you go to Germany and you say, 
I'm I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm an evangelical. They'll go, right, Protestant. I just heard, I'm not a Protestant, I'm a Protestant. What's your point? No, no, I'm an evangelical. Yeah, blah, 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 Protestant. By the way, same thing in Central America. You go and you go, what, what I'm a Protestant. I'll look at you and go, what, what's a Protestant? There's only two things. There's, there's Catholics and there's evangelicals. Those are the two different things. If you try to use evangelical as something to clarify what kind of Protestant you are, you're going to confuse large portions of the world. They're going to go, I thought that's what a Protestant was. Anyway, 1832, they stepped up and actually started persecuting anybody that would stand against that. They started arresting Lutheran pastors for calling themselves Lutherans. Um, their doctrines, they start burning Lutheran books. It's like, no, we've got, we want everybody just to get along. Who do we have to kill to make everybody just get along? Because that works, by the way. Institutionalized Christianity, make the state in charge of it. It works. It's great. Best way to make everybody Christian is to make everybody Christian. Tell me there are Christians sitting in America right now that don't believe exactly that. Why can't we get a president in that just has good, strong evangelical values who will just make laws that make everybody do the stuff we want them to be doing in the first place? We don't want to get a president in that will make laws that allow people to continue doing things we don't want them to do. How can we make people Christians if the law doesn't make them do it? Tell me there are good, strong evangelical Christians. That's exactly why they want a good, strong evangelical president. Not that I'm saying that it's wrong to have a good, solid evangelical president. But is that how the church grows? Is that how we strengthen? Or is that, in some ways, how we round off our edges? Anyway, 1834, Friedrich Wilhelm finally starts backing off a bit, saying, fine, maybe the whole arresting everybody was the wrong call. Kill him. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Sorry, sorry, do over. Um, you can have some. You can have some of your own identities. You can call yourself Lutherans as long as you assimilate your liturgies and your structures of your church to the Prussian Union model. You want to be a Lutheran church? Fine, fine. Just follow our model on a Sunday morning, and make sure that your church governance is based on the on the Prussian Union model. Again, right? Um, I don't want to be not Cherokee. Right? Well, as long as you're not Cherokee, then everything's fine. Don't talk your silly Cherokee talk. Learn English like a real person. And own property, then you can stay in Georgia. Right. I don't want to be not Cherokee. Well, that's the deal. You just got to assimilate to the dominant culture and everything will be fine. I don't, I don't want to do that. So what's your option? What do you do? You go underground. You hide your church. You pretend to do this. You assimilate. What else can you do? Leave! Leave! That's why the old Lutherans left Prussia and went to America. They're like, well, here's a whole continent over there saying, believe what you want to believe. We don't want to go to New York City because it's filled with people. We don't want to go someplace filled with people. So we're going to go to the Northwest. By the way, the Northwest is what we would now call the Midwest, right? This is still the Northwest. You know, crazy remote places like Wisconsin and Illinois. Places where apparently almost nobody goes. That's where we want to go where we can actually live out our Lutheranism as we see fit, right? Removed from any other group, we can just be good, solid, old Lutherans. That makes sense? By the way, technically, isn't this at least arguably part of what the Indian Removal Act was doing? If you want to still be you, could you do it somewhere else? Now, there's a difference between, hey, I got an idea. I'd like to still be us, why don't we do it somewhere else? Versus the government going, hey, I got an idea. If you want to still be you, why don't you go do that somewhere else? A little bit of a difference, but 
Basic concept. Later on, there were other new Lutherans from Saxony, nearish Prussia, and they also immigrated to the New World, but they weren't saying, oh, we refuse to go to, the, to be part of the Union, we refuse to round off different edges, we refuse to work with people. No, no, no. They were saying, actually, our biggest problem is this growing rationalism and deism in Europe. This growing sense that the church should just be based on whatever makes the most sense, whatever is the most practical. Like, no, 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 we really think you ought to have some theology. But they're nowhere near as conservative. They're nowhere near as reactionary. So they, were, they didn't feel like they needed to go to the outer limits of, of America. So they, they settled in, 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 in like St. Louis. Like, let's find an urban center and be around there. Not New York, but farther on enough that we can still be us, but we're fine with working with others. Does that make sense? Yep. This is why the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, even today, are extremely conservative. And why the Missouri Synod Lutherans tend to be more open and generally accommodating. Because of why they're coming. What? That's why I grew up in Missouri Synod. So if you've ever sat there and gone, I don't understand why these two hate each other, this is why. They're in close proximity. Originally, they're in close-ish proximity here. They're both in the Midwest. But when you go, well, why did they split off? They were never together in the first place. These were Prussians who, were, who had just gotten out of, well, why don't you just accommodate and change all your views? Ignore scripture and do what we say to do. And you go, nope, they spent 200 years saying, nope. These guys were Saxons who said, you know, you're getting to be biblical, but uh, now you can work with people. But that's pushing it too far. And that's why both of them sat there and said, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, you guys are just nuts. Because it's not like the Missouri Synod is liberal. I mean, they're still fairly conservative. It's just the Wisconsin Synod makes them look, you know, like Buddhists. Um, but they both look at this particular mainline denomination and say, you guys are bonkers. All you're doing is doing Lutheran stuff. You haven't held on to any of the theology. The fact that you do Lutheran-y stuff doesn't make you Lutherans. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't remember which denomination they are. Anybody want to look that up on your phone and let us know? I don't remember which that is. But I, wouldn't it be ironic if the, Wisconsin, if the Wisconsin Lutheran Church would be Missouri Synod? I think that would be hysterically funny. But anyway, just to give you a little bit of a background of what's going on with the different synods in America. 1832 is also the year the Black Hawk War broke out, and if you live in Illinois, you should be familiar with the Black Hawk War, and if you say I'm not, then sigh. Well, it's, it's, it's an important war. Do it your permission? Yeah. Led by a, a Sauk chief, Black Hawk, and there's a, there's a whole confederation of tribes. The Meskwaki, the Fox, the Kickapoo, the Bodwami, the Ottawa, the Ho-Chunk, all these getting together in the Ohio Territory. Yep. Yeah. Actually, that's that's kind of what they kind of came into their own with the idea of the casino. They they were they were one of the ones that went. Wait, we live on federal land. Wait, the rules are different. Wait. No. <laughs> it just makes the name make a little more sense. Yep. Who comes up with Ho-Chunk? <laughs> it's a Native American tribe. Anyway. So they were like, well, wait, we're in Iowa. We're in this in this federal land in Iowa because not all federal land was desert, you know. No, we're in federal land in Iowa, but we decided we're going to retake the lands in Illinois that we had ceded back to America back in 1804. We signed a whole treaty about that. About 30 years ago, we kind of want that back now. 
So they all came back and reinvaded the, their, their original territory. The U.S. Army marched out in pursuit of them. And they kept doing all these lightning attacks over here because they were on horses. So they'd do all these lightning attacks then right away. And, they, and the American troops would just run right after them saying, you, stop! Which isn't a good plan, you know, because it's not like the Americans had a cavalry. We're just, we're just marching. And we can even march really fast, but it's not as fast as horses. So they're attacking forts and settlements and things like that in northern Illinois, and, and it became easier and easier to do that the more the army was in the field chasing that badly. Uh, over and over again, yeah, the, the, the army was being thwarted by the fact that they don't got horses. And we keep yelling, stop thief, and the thief doesn't stop. Strangely enough, we're like, stop thief, you got my television, and he cries off saying, I know. <laughs> Relatively short war, but it did impress upon the United States Army, we ought to develop some cavalry. And if you've ever watched old 50s movies, it's important to realize that the United States Cavalry was originally designed for Indian wars. And so you sit there and you just go, why is it always the Cavalry versus the Indians? Because you know, that's why it was designed. That's why it started, was. Because it used to, remember back in England, they came up with this idea of having cavalry and how cool that was? But you don't need cavalry anymore. Now you've got rifles, you got all this kind of stuff. For the longest time, cavalry, you'd have some mounted troops and they'd have like a breastplate and a nifty shiny helmet and things. Just they were part. You even the England still had lancers and stuff, but they were like specialized units. It wasn't really part of your army that much. All of a sudden, we're like, you know, we kind of need a mobile infantry, i.e., cavalry. So anyway, uh, and it made household names of people that hopefully their names are familiar to you. All of whom were coming out of the, out of this war: Winfield Scott, Zachary Taylor. Jefferson Davis, William Henry Harrison, all became heroes because of the Black Hawk War. And all of a sudden, everybody knows these names because of the Black Hawk War. Although, William Henry Harrison has just been running around making a name for himself for a while now. Interestingly, show that hostilities were over and that the U.S. Army is the one that's won, Black Hawk was taking this tour of major U.S. cities because that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to trot them around and show them, look at the magnificence of America. And we also wanted to trot into the streets and say, look at Black Hawk. We've taken it. Ha, ha, ha. It wasn't malicious. It's not like they put him in a cage or anything. Treated him like a head of state. But they wanted to show everybody in America. Remember this guy that you've been reading about? See, he's not killing anybody anymore. We, we won. And Black Hawk, you, you, you think that you have a bunch of people with all your tribes? Realize the thousands of people we have in any given city. So the post-war era brings them to the public eye, especially to Easterners and uh, urban dwellers and various intellectuals who had never seen an Indian. They'd heard about Indians, but they'd never seen one. Blackhawk, and particularly his son, apparently a very charismatic, very good-looking guy, very charismatic, quietly stoic. They would talk about the innate nobility of the red man. People who had never run into an Indian reading about this and seeing this guy in public, and they're like, I'm so, I was so impressed. Weren't you impressed? I was so impressed by him. He was very impressive. And this myth of the noble savage starts. Anybody ever in lit class hear about the noble savage? What's the noble savage myth? Isn't that a little bit like what Andrew Rice Burles was thinking with Tarzan, too? Oh, gosh, yeah. Although, you can make the argument that, that there's a lot of Breeding will out yes, in Burroughs. But what's... Okay, the myth of the noble savage is 
There's an inherent nobility with just living off the land and being simple. Why we've complicated everything with our industry and our learning and our books. But if you, all you do is just say, I love trees and I will live off the land. These are good, noble people by definition. 90% of Star Trek The Next Generation episodes still lived on the noble, savage idea. If we could just be agrarian, no farmers ever fought each other over land. No Native Americans fought each other over horses. No. They were inherently noble, and we've lost that. Um, no, they're just people. They're, you know how you're people? Yeah, well, they were people too. Yes, but they were different. No, actually, they might have dressed differently, but they're still people. They still had exactly the same problems you did. They, you like your neighbor's wife, so you steal your neighbor's wife. They like their neighbor's wife, so they steal their neighbor's wife. Yeah, Ten Commandments still apply exactly the same. But all of a sudden, in this romantic era, you start hearing people writing things about the noble savage and about how the Indians were essentially noble and things. Pocahontas, you ever see the Disney Pocahontas? I'm sorry. Because the Disney Pocahontas is horrible! On so many levels, bad history, and it is, you might as well subtitle it, Disney Pocahontas, i.e. the noble savage. Because you know, she's just inherently noble, whereas the Europeans are inherently evil. Why are they dirty, scummy people who sit in boats? Anyway, 1833. Slavery is abolished in the British Empire. Now, we've already talked about this, so I'm not going to go into massive detail, but again, William Wilberforce heard that the Whigs are pushing for this boat, and that it was certain to pass and then died happily the next day. It's like, yep, that's what I've been fighting for decades for. Increasingly, not only are, are people being free, but it's becoming gauche to mistreat or speak ill of people of color. Interestingly, it's kind of the flip side in some ways of where we're at now. Interesting is the lawmakers are doing this out of conscience. Like the Whigs are, are trying to push social reform out of, out of a strong sense of conscience. But the British public are largely doing it because it's kind of a fad. Like, let's talk about those exotic people. Aren't they so much more exotic than us? I mean, we eat cucumber sandwiches. We think that's kind of exotic. These people dress in animal skins. Could you imagine? Anyway, that's that. I mean, that's the way. So it's, it's odd for us to think that the government is leading the moral, the, the, the moral crusade. The people are following the government going, oh, well, okay, but it's the Whigs that are going, oh, this is the right thing to do morally. It's kind of funky. Can you imagine a government that leads, no, no. Okay. 1833. Sermon launched what was called the Oxford Movement. Has anybody? No. Reform-minded Whigs. These are the guys in charge here in England. They're on a roll. They're repealing old laws. They're passing new laws. They're changing everything. That Sacramental Test Act of 1828 comes in and says, you know, up until this point, um, you, you've required people to take sacraments within the Church of England before they can hold office, which tacitly keeps Roman Catholics out, and Anabaptists out, and any of the unwanted people. I said, no, 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 we're repealing that. Following that with the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829 that repeals the Test Act of 1672 that says, where every office holder has to swear, I do declare, I, state your name, do declare that... I do believe that there is not any transubstantiation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or in the elements of the bread and wine at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever. If you're going to hold office, you have to say you don't believe in transubstantiation and that no priest can come along and make something holy that wasn't holy to begin with. In other words, 
no Catholics, right? Or Lutherans, for that matter, technically. Actively allowing Catholics now to sit in Parliament. Catholics can now be in Parliament openly. We're also going to remove those penal laws that punish anybody for being Roman Catholic. The Whigs are going, you know what, enough of this. If they want to be Roman Catholic, they can be Roman Catholic. Right? We're, if we free the slaves, we can do this. That's fair. Reform Act of 1832 says, you know what? The Prime Minister has always been able to restructure districts as he sees fit. And so the House of Commons is constantly being changed. They go, wait, am I rep I'm representing one district. Nope, no, I'm not, nope, I'm not a representative anymore. I don't have a district. It's a way of controlling the House of Commons. Nope, we're repealing that. You don't get to control the House of Commons anymore. The House of Lords is their lords. They can't mess with that. They're, they've got a title. They've got peerage. The House of Commons keeps getting messed with. Now we're going to let the House of Commons decide their own districts so that you can have stability there and they can have strength. Yay, Whigs! Church Temporalities Act of 1833. Let's fix this. Church of Ireland is like bankrupt. They keep screwing everything up. We'll take over the Church of Ireland. We'll tell them how they can secularize their, 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 their finances. We'll change how they go about leasing their land and get money. They'll start making more money. This is great. We'll change all the bishoprics around. This will work. This will be great. Oh. Oh, what are you booing for? Yay, yay, yay. Boo? <laughs> Boo, yeah. So... Oxford fellow John Keeble comes along and says, whoa, too much, guys, too much. I was with you all the way up to 1833. All of a sudden, I think you overstepped your bounds. You do not get to mess with the church. You want to let people believe what they want to believe, fine, but you don't get to come in and go, and we'll fix what the church is doing wrong. That never works well. So he gave a sermon at Oxford called National Apostasy, and he quoted from 1 Samuel. Like, one verse from 1 Samuel. And he does this, like, two-hour sermon about how Britain is basically just like the, the Jews in uh, the Old Testament. He's just like, no, you, it's, uh, it's like when the, when the Hebrews were asking for their own king. Because we want a king with a skin on. And that's what we're asking for. We're asking England to control the church. Is that what, you know, I'm pretty sure that's not what 1 Samuel's talking about. Yeah, it's exactly what 1 Samuel's talking about. It's talking about England control, and we should never allow the government to control the church. He's like, much of the problem is because of growing liberality in England. It's not so much the Whigs are saying, I want freedom for people. What the Whigs are saying, according to Keeble, is you can believe whatever you want to believe. And it's wrong to criticize anybody for their religious beliefs. Can you imagine a society where, in general, the government is trying to help people understand that it's wrong. Not just that everybody should believe whatever they want, but that that's good for everybody to believe whatever they want. There isn't a capital T truth out there that anybody should follow. It's all just little t, t truths that make you happy anyway, so whatever makes you happy, just do that. Did you, did you picture living in a society that actually frowns on anybody telling anybody else that you think they're wrong? That sounds terrible. I can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Instead, he says, we need to ground ourselves in conservative, traditional, classic, biblical Christianity. You shouldn't let the government or the culture dictate terms. Shouldn't make them. Shouldn't let them tell you to shrink back from classical Christianity. And everybody in the room says, <coughs> "Amen." That's right. So a bunch of conservatives all over England go, "Exactly. We need to be Catholic." Because that's what you thought, right? When I said that, you said, "Dude." Catholicism. They said, no, we need some sort of grounding for the Church of England. 
we need to go back to classic Christianity. And by classic Christianity, I mean Catholicism. Yeah! The argument is made that the true church has three parts. Because Christianity has come and it has three parts. Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Anglicanism. Because if you get to design the flow chart, you're, you're like a direct line back to classic Christianity, right? Because you designed the flow chart. Anyway, so like this, this is what Christianity truly is. And we need to remember that. The Protestants, that's just kind of an offshoot. They're off doing their own thing, tickling everybody's ears. Look over at America. They just keep, they keep birthing new religions right and left. It's whatever you feel like you want it to be. Individual interpretation is dangerous. Isn't that exactly what the, what the Roman Catholics argued back in 1517? That the danger with Luther is individual interpretation will just lead to screwiness? He was Roman Catholicism. Rome was so right. We should, we should go back to Rome. Plus, we've let the church get too plain. I mean, from Cromwell on, we've been taking down all the filigree. We've been saying you know, that, that we should have pastors. No! We should, we should, the worship of a magnificent God should be magnificent. God is, is other and special, so everything we do should be other and special. It just makes sense. Protestants have talked about relationship, so much about relationship that they lost that essential otherness of God. We shouldn't be focused on relationship with God, we should be focused on honoring God. And by honoring God, that means that we have to focus on his otherness, and we need a proper distance from God so that we see him as holy. Rome got this right. They have, these Protestants are saying, meet in your homes, open up the Bible together, read it together. Here, let me write the Bible in your common tongue. Conversational English so that you can read it. Can you imagine the horror of that? What we need are big, beautiful cathedrals, big, beautiful gilt boxes where we put God. And we need to write the, go back and rewrite the Bible in big flowy terms. I, I know that nobody talks like King James English anymore, but when I hear God, that's the voice I hear him speaking in. And since it's very other than us, that's really the way God talks. I, I remember going to a conference one time and hearing, I think I've talked to you about this before, but hearing this guy speak and I heard he was going to read Philippians out loud through this conference. And I was like, ooh, this guy has a beautiful voice and he's a voice actor. And it's like, I'm looking forward to this. We've just studied Philippians in our small group. This very, very personal, very intimate letter, one of the most intimate of the church letters, where Paul's like, you guys are doing this right. Hold on. You know, it's always oh, so good. And the guy gets up there and he's like, oh, I'd like to read Philippians for you. Philippians, chapter one, this one. I'm like, are you, are you affecting a British accent? Why would... Why would you fake a British accent? And it was all very flowy and very eloquent and not even remotely conversational. For he is reading scripture. Wait. Are you nuts? This is a personal letter from Paul! Are there if you want to do that in Psalms, do that in Psalms. Break out that that is poetry, baby. That is beautiful. That is eloquent. Fake British accent, I'm not sure I'd go with that one. But the eloquence of it, build the eloquence of it. That's beautiful. But the idea was, if it's the Bible, it must be other. It must be artificially magnified. 
So the Anglican Church began a conscious reintegration of pseudo-Catholic practices and things. All of a sudden, they've got those little white collars again. All of a sudden, they've got priests. All of a sudden, they're creating their own religious orders. Right? As God intended. Now, here's the thing, though. Not because they have theological connections to Rome. This isn't that they said, we really respect Rome's theology. And Rome has a whole theology as to why they're doing this stuff. And so that's why we want to do this stuff. It wasn't theology into practice. It was, that's what feels traditional, feels grounded, and feels worshipy. Do you see an inherent danger in that? If you genuinely believe there's a theology behind something, and that theology drives you, I'm like, no, praise God. I might disagree with you, but I respect what you're doing. This is saying, forget the theology. I like the way they do it. Let's do it that way. It feels worshipy. Which, when you think about it, is exactly the thing that Keeble's talking about. You're just tickling ears. You're pointing in the, the opposite direction. But all you're doing is what makes people feel good. You're ignoring conservative scriptural Christianity. I'll give credit to Rome. At least they're doing because they think that's what they're supposed to do. You're doing it because you think it feels like Roman Catholicism. Which is part of why the Anglican Church has become famous for being the most vapid, pointless church. That they don't believe anything. If you talk to most people who, are, who wander the streets of England, if you talk to most British comedians, they'll just go, yeah, the Church of England is kind of a joke. Yeah, a vicar comes in and goes, morning, morning. Thank you. I'd like to thank all, all three of you aged people for sitting in my church building today, and I'd like to read for you something I read in Good Housekeeping this week. You know, it's like, it's not, in general, a thriving church. I would argue in large part because of this moment in history where they said, what matters is how whitewashed the outside is. What matters is how it feels like churchiness. Again, you want to do something? You want to pull something in because you think theologically that's solid? Great. But moving from that feels good to try to find some theological basis for it, that's going to end bad places. One Oxford Anglican priest was a guy named John Henry Newman. Between that liberalism that he saw and the fact that everybody's saying, hey, you should be more Catholic, and the fact that he's like, well, Protestants are doing all this individual thing, and the fact that he looks at the Anglican Church and says, well, this is kind of the wrong way of doing this. He says, well, why don't I just why don't I just become Catholic? So he joins the Roman Catholic Church, eventually becomes a bishop, and this leading light amongst the English-speaking world in education and apologetics and things, which is why so many colleges have Newman centers. If you go to a lot of colleges, they will have John Henry Newman centers. That's where you learn about being a good Catholic. I asked because we would go there sometimes with my uh, Catholic friend, and they never Megan was at the Newman Center on Friday. Yeah. So you got John Henry Newman, who, who sat there and he became a Catholic because the, the Anglicans were immediately doing this so badly. Which is why, ironically, at a time when the, when the Anglicans are being more pointless, he's like, oh, let's have a rich Catholicism. In fact, he was beatified by Pope Benedict the. 16th in 2010, and they're still waiting on that second miracle for him to be a, a, a saint, but cross your fingers, they find a second miracle. John Henry Newman going to get to be a saint. Anyway, 1835, first presidential assassin. That's history, isn't it? That's important history. Richard Lawrence became the first assassin to attack a sitting president, pulled two pistols on 70-year-old Andrew Jackson, while Janet Jackson was exiting a senator's funeral. Kind of important. Did you ever heard about this? It's good stuff, ain't it? 
Lawrence is a house painter in Washington who'd moved to America from England as a boy. He was also King Richard III. He was very certain that he was King Richard III. Yes, King Richard III died something like 400 years earlier. Doesn't matter. He's King Richard III and thus the rightful King of England. You're a house painter. Rightful King of England. He didn't have the funds to travel to England and decided that clearly that's because of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had been messing with the, with the bank. But beyond that, the U.S. government clearly owed him reparations for keeping him for his, from his throne. The U.S. government has been keeping him from his throne. Otherwise, why is he not sitting on the throne of England? And since Andrew Jackson's in charge of the... Uh, uh, because you always want to face to your problem, right? It's not terrorism. It's Osama bin Laden. Yeah, there's always a person that you want to look at. So clearly, Jackson had it out for him. Yeah, Jackson has some sort of personal vendetta against Richard Lawrence. He was sure of it. So he began telling people the government was putting articles in the newspapers against him. Surely you've read them. I mean, they might be coded, but they're all about me. The whole newspaper is about how the government hates me. My own family is conspiring against me. One day, he's sitting there reading a book, slams it shut, stands up and chuckles, well, I'll be damned if I don't do it, and leaves. To shoot Jackson! Because he's, I don't know if I've clarified this yet, he's a kook, all right? Man's a nut. So, Jackson's exiting the funeral, Lawrence opens fire with both pistols point-blank range, and both misfired. <laughs> People were concerned about this, so they made the government test and retest and retest, and they're like, was there something wrong with the pistols? And they're like, actually, no. They recocked them and shot, and they shot just fine. They, they loaded and reloaded, and they're like, there's nothing wrong with the pistols. There's no reason why they should have misfired. Certainly not both of them. They have no idea. Pistols sometimes misfired, but we did, I think they did something like 12 times. They're like, all 12 times it was fine. All 12 times, it was just fine. Which led some people to say, clearly God was protecting Andrew Jackson, blessing our nation. It was interesting, I was watching a website at one point, who said, or the bullets, like everybody else, were just afraid of Andrew Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> He's 70 years old, and he starts beating the snot out of the guy. <laughs> Nearly beat Lawrence to death with his cane. In fact, his buddy, Davy Crockett, had to pull him it physically off. Davy Crockett pulled 70-year-old Andrew Jackson off the guy going, yes, I know he just tried to shoot you, but you can't kill him. You know? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, Andrew Jackson. You make a better movie. <laughs> you never did. I've never heard of him. I know. But I'm back to the coolest tough guy line of any movie ever was Charlton Heston playing Andrew Jackson with a guy putting a gun to his head, and he turns and looks at the guy and says, you could put a bullet in my brain, and I'd still live long enough to kill you. Apparently, you could. Apparently, yes. Apparently, the bullet goes. I'm not going anywhere near anything. But I feel like maybe even if it did, he's right. Yeah. So. Was this a play? That you on the left, is that like a play? Uh, no, this is actually a broadside for the for the trial. The trial became oh. a media sensation. I mean, Lawrence is asserting, he's like, I should be passing judgment on this court, not this court. I'm, I mean, every day was a new soundbite from this guy. The judge deliberated for we five minutes. the next president. <laughs> oh, no. no. Oh. Man, he's already king of England. I don't <laughs> I don't want the power to go to his head. Anyway, they deliberate for five minutes before coming to a decision of not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, okay. 
He's going to go away for the rest of his life, but he's certainly not guilty. Jackson is he's furious. He's like, of course he's guilty. I don't care if he's insane. But Jackson was sure that Lawrence had really been an agent of his real nemesis. He had a political nemesis, who, by the way, is also his former vice president. Did anybody know Jackson's one true nemesis? The one guy he hated more than anybody? John C. Calhoun. Oh, that's right. Whose name you should know. John C. Calhoun had served as vice president under John Quincy Adams, who had been Jackson's political rival and, and, and his predecessor. And he fought with Jackson on a bunch of issues, including something called the nullification crisis, which all of you are looking at. Okay, I'll talk to you about that. The federal government established this tariff to protect northern industries. After the War of 1812, England tried to undercut American industry by selling really cheap stuff. And so, uh, so, the, so the federal government said, we're going to establish some tariffs to try to protect northern industries so that they don't fall apart. We need to help them do this. South Carolina led the southern states in opposing it, saying, no, 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 favors the north. That's not fair. Therefore, we declare the tariff null and void. Yeah, well, but it's a federal law. And the states go, who cares? So now we're back to, remember when I said, I started all this off by saying, uh, Jackson's like, oh, you guys in the Supreme Court, you can, you can make whatever laws that you want, but I can't, I can't make them work. I can't make anybody follow them. The states are ignoring me right and left. Perfect example. South Carolina going, yeah, we don't care. Since he was from South Carolina, the vice president of the United States sided with the states against the federal government, saying, of course, states have the, have the right to disregard the federal government whenever they want. Of course they do. Arguing that more importantly than anything else is their liberty, their state sovereignty. In fact, if you try to press this issue, they'll secede. You starting to hear that argument more and more? You tell us we can't take Cherokee land, we'll secede. You tell us we have to pay this tariff to help the North, we'll secede. Keeps coming up. Back at a formal dinner one time, Jackson proposed a toast. Our federal union, it must be preserved. To which Calhoun responded, the union next to our liberty, the most, the most dear. I'd rather hold our liberty than our union. He says this at a public state dinner. He doesn't like Calhoun. Not so much, no. Got this little pseudo beard under the chin thing. Anybody ever hear the Peggy Eaton affair? It's a more personal thing. Or sometimes I'll refer to it as the petticoat affair. Jackson was good friends with the Secretary of State John Eaton and his new wife, Peggy. New young couple, nice people, really likes him, his kind of people. Peggy was apparently a babe. From everything I could read, everybody was like, oh, yeah. You know, she's apparently really, really cute. She's also a widow. And Eaton may or may not have had an affair with her before her husband died. It's possible. It's possible he was just a really nice guy and really liked the family. And after her husband died, she turned to eat. It's also possible they had an affair. Nobody's exactly sure. She'd also worked as a barmaid to support herself because her husband was very poor and he was an alcoholic and he had all sorts of problems and then he died. So she's like, I gotta find work somewhere. She didn't do anything like naughty, she just worked at a bar. By the way, a lot of people frequented bars, duh. But all that was a bit much for the Capitol Hill wives. She's very cute, very sociable, she, um, she may, she's a widow, and you know what they're like. And she is very, uh, and, and she may have been, uh, may have had an affair, she was a barmaid, she's not our kind of people. So, Calhoun and his wife, Fluoride? I have no idea how you pronounce her name. I'm going to call her Fluoride. 
The wives carried out an orchestrated campaign to shun and publicly humiliate the Eatons, especially Peggy. Every time that they could, they wouldn't invite her to parties, and when they did, they were like, oh, it's the slut. This is like every time, as much as they could, to smear her as much as they possibly could. Do you see why Jackson may not like the Calhouns? Well, and Jackson already was, there was stuff with his wife yeah. that was already, because they'd been pretty nasty to his... Yep, he'd gone through it with his wife, because, yeah, there are all sorts of problems. Yeah, he blamed them for, for dying? That's a whole other, yes, okay. but that's a whole other thing, because okay. I need to finish this. Okay. Final day of his presidency. Final day of his presidency, Andrew Jackson was asked if he had any regrets as he's leaving office. Any regrets? He responded that he only regretted that he had been unable to shoot Henry Clay or hang John C. Calhoun. That's my only regret. It's like King David on his deathbed. Kinda! Yeah, I'm sure he would Or beat Richard Lawrence to death with my king. Just to back up, if you remember who Henry Clay is, he's a pro-slavery senator from, from Kentucky um, who had lost both elections against Jackson and who had fought him on every turn, and he created the American Whig Party specifically to oppose Jackson. That's why the Whigs existed in America was because Henry Clay said, we need a party that can beat Jackson. So, not good friends. But beyond that, he also devised the Missouri Compromise. Familiar with that term at least? Most of the free white Americans lived in the North, but in 1787, they'd, they'd done the three-fifths compromise, which said that when you're trying to count for representatives, slaves count as three-fifths of a human being. No, they don't get to vote. But since you go, well, most people live in the North, and the South has lower representation, they have fewer people. The South says, well, then we have lower representation in Congress. That's not fair. The North says, well, sure, it's fair, because you have less people. The South's like, no, it's not fair, because we've got a lot of people, they're just slaves. North is like, are you going to let them? Going to let them vote? Like, well, no. Well, then they're you're not their representatives. So they say, okay, tell you what, how about they're three fifths of a person? Slaves are three fifths of a person. You count the slaves, and if you count the slaves that way, we actually have a slight edge in congressional authority. So yeah, let's let's come up with this particular compromise. When Alabama and Missouri came in as slave states in 1820, and then Maine eventually came in as a as a free state. Clay said, why don't we just draw a line across a, a parallel at Actually, no, the Mason-Dixon line is up in, in Maryland, but it's like what we normally think of as the Mason-Dixon line, where, where he says, everything coming in below that line, we'll call it a slave state. Everything coming in above that line, we'll call it a free state. That seems fair, doesn't it? Especially since most of the new growth that they're perceiving is, is going to be coming in under that line. So they're like, yeah, and this is just Nothing. This is filled with Mexicans that don't want to be Mexicans anymore. Yeah, yeah. We like this area. That's a good idea, isn't it? I mean, you're not actually cutting this, the country in half. You're just cutting it in half in terms of representation and maps and culture and... Per good call. Thomas Jefferson wrote that he believed that drawing that line is going to lead to alienation between the North and the South. And he says this. This is going to break up the union right here, more than anything else. By the way, he's right, right? Speaking of states in union and coming into slave states, 1836, Texas declares its independence. <laughs> so let's start next week with Texas declaring its independence. <laughs> See, I thought I'd throw you a bone before. There you go. We're going to have some, a little bit of fun with that next week. But 
How would you summarize what's been going on at this state in history? What, what <laughs> how would you summarize today, you know, what we talked about today? We're still seeing a lot of the um, like the differences between like the loose words. Like Megan was just saying, like one of her friends is um, the Northern and one is the Southern, Missouri Senate and Wisconsin. Wisconsin Senate. And, and that's still happening today. Exactly. A lot of independence. A lot of independence, but. Seeing, and some of what we're seeing is independence based on we have clear philosophical differences, like the North and the South. A lot of these are based on, well, we want to look like this as opposed to looking like that. Increasingly, we're finding people who are finding good philosophical reasons to say everybody's doing things wrong and I'm willing to fight and have wars over this. And we're seeing people who are willing to uh, leave their own homeland so that they don't have fights and wars over these things. And we're seeing other people saying, ah, theology, schmology, what feels good is, so which is it? What do we do? Should we, should we round off our edges so that we all get along? Should we fight each other and make sure that everybody else does what we know to be right? Or should we just leave and go do our own thing? Which of those three options should we do? None. Yeah, by the way, that's an unfair question. You're not bound to just those three options. So as Christians, as people of the book, as followers of Christ, what should we do? If not, round off what we know to be true. If not, fight each other. If not, just abandon each other. What should we do? Even in the scripture there, it says when someone preaching Christ contrary to what they should be, mm -hmm. it says as long as God's using that, yeah, I mean, look at Apollos and say, oh, it's not the way I would do that, and there's not something. And yet people are coming to know the Lord, so correct him, but um, don't stop him. Okay? But what's implicit in all that? You're not fighting him, you're not abandoning him, you're not agreeing with him, you're... How about communicating, teaching? How about, in terms of correction, it's not a matter of, by correcting, I mean, I'll shoot you if you keep doing it. By correcting, it's more of a matter of, let's do a Bible study together, let's talk about this, let's engage. Dialogue. Dialogues is a wonderful thing. Let's end on that thought. <laughs> Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that we are not just the sum total of our chiefings. Lord, I pray, help us, help us not to just fight one another or compromise truth, but help us to genuinely desire to speak truth in love to one another, to conflict and to argue, but do it with a spirit of love to care conscientiously about each other. Pray that you be glorified not only by what we do, but how and why we do it. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.